Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research on neuroscience and psychology while talking through our own personal experiences. So this week on the podcast, we spoke to Dr. Metty Leonard-Hoe, and she is a postdoctoral researcher at the Oxford Uhiro Centre of Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. And Ava and I both spoke to Mete and her research is super interesting. It's about consciousness research and how we can apply that to the field of literature. So we speak about different theories of consciousness. We speak about what possible future societies could look like depending on theories of consciousness we could find. Yeah, so we hope you guys enjoy it. I'm a postdoc researcher at the University of Oxford, hosted research fellow at the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. And right now, right now I'm doing a visiting, short visiting research stay at the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies, which is where we are sitting in Melbourne. My background is in literature. I did my thesis on uncertainty of meaning and uncertainty of interpretation in modernist literature and literary theory. And also did some film studies and like fiction stuff more generally further back, some philosophy as well. I also work as a literary critic, also with broader cultural criticism for various media. And then with my current project, I'm trying to take literature with me into the field of consciousness research and consciousness ethics. So I'm at the intersection of neuroscience and literature and philosophy, really. Yeah. Um, and there's sort of two main levels or dimensions to my current project now. One is like the broader aim or ambition, which is to the hope to establish consciousness research as this broad interdisciplinary field and integrate into it disciplines from the humanities to strengthen the ethical and existential dimensions of, of this field. And then within this broad field that I'm trying to establish, in which I see as like a many years into the future project, I'm trying to also um, look at literature specifically and the value of potential value of incorporating or using literature and literary study to think about ethics and existentialism in in consciousness research. Cool. Yeah. So interesting. And I feel like before I met you, I didn't even know this was an area. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess from what I've understood since you've been here, the the idea behind the work is so we're finding out all these theories of consciousness, well, you know, working out different ones. And of course, that has an impact on how people feel, because mm -hmm. if we're told oh, things like, oh, you have no free will or you have no self, these kind of things, how does that make us feel and how do we react to that? Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, you are looking at how we can use literature so when people find out that information, they don't, they can feel safe. Is that right? That's part of it, at least. Yeah, part of it. I mean, there are several ways of using literature in this, and, and those are one of them. Um, because some of, so, I mean, there are all these new theories of consciousness, and there isn't really any consensus about how we explain consciousness and its relation to matter yet. But um, but lots of the theories that appear are challenging some of the very conventional ways human beings have seen themselves and and just generally sort of inscribed in this materialist scientific time and scientific explanation of human beings, just gaining authority more and more. Um, and that can be, you know, that explanation of human beings and existence in these materialist scientific terms can be quite disturbing for people. Um, and then I find it really interesting to see, well, to realize that neuroscience in a sense is in a sense a newcomer to the study of consciousness and also these non-essential conceptions of self and like the potential lack of free will and things like that. Because in literature, there are lots of these notions of non-essential forms of self or existence and ideas of, of human beings and existence that cohere with these new neuroscientific theories, but where these notions that undermine our belief in centered self and agency and free will in present when presented in neuroscientific context can seem quite alienating and just yeah. like disenchanting. When you see them represented in literature, for instance, in some of the modernist literature I've been looking at, you really see how these ideas also entail like a emancipatory potential and can be viewed or framed in a really exciting, actually positively mystifying way that can give meaning to life. 
um, so that which gives one a sense indicates that adopting these non-essential notions of self and subscribing or accepting the new new scientific theories of self and human beings doesn't need to entail like this cold, harsh presentation of human beings and, and empty existence of all meaning, but that it can be combined with like a humanist project yeah. and yeah, in a sense of meaningfulness. Do you explain so what you mean by non-essential forms or theories of self and some examples of that that are in the literature and maybe also like parallels that exist in neuroscience that you were kind of alluding to? Yeah, so I'm trying to look at at non-essential forms or notions of self in, in, in various fields, both in literary studies, literature and contemplative studies and theories and then neuroscience and looking at the overlaps there. Um, and I don't at all have like an exhaustive or full overview of that yet. But I'm interested, for instance, in 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 the presentation of or like the conception of self that's entailed in predictive processing theory, where the self is explained as a process and not as an like an essential thing or like a center to like property. And then the overlap or the alignment of that with with like a, the no self doctrine in Buddhism, like the theory or the view there that there is no centered self, which aligns with that as well. And the reductionist account of self in philosophy, for instance, as presented by Derek Parfit, which also coheres quite yeah a lot with the with the new scientific explanations and then i've been looking what i've been looking at most recently in literature is uh, the ideas of self and existence in robert musil the man the man without qualities his, his novel modernist novel and virginia wolf's the waves who also have these yeah, non-essential conceptions non-essential in the sense yes that there is no centered no nucleus or like centered and stable self but that we are more processual in, in, in some way. Yeah. So you just mentioned that you use the waves of Virginia Woolf novel. Could you give an example of how she explains that? And do you think that when she wrote that novel, that's what she was trying to capture that idea? Yeah. Well, so she has this in the waves is this novel that's made up by soliloquies by six main characters. And it's, she incorporated, she's one of the authors from the modernist period who worked very sort of uh, deliberately with the scientific theories from her contemporaneity um, and integrated these scientific theories in her work, partly because they, they aligned with the idea she already had herself about identity and, 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 and being human. And in this work, she she does this thing with these like soliloquies or monologues of the characters that sort of blended into each other. Um, there's like repetition of the same tropes and the, the, the use of metaphors and the way they speak. And they're even, so you see them as they sort of go to school together when they're young. And then when they grow older, they're sort of separated by geographical dif- distance and different places in their life doing different things, but they're still somehow psychologically connected and in terms of identity as well um, and she does that stylistically blends or dissolves the distinction between the characters by sort of integrating the way they speak in the same kind of discourse and she also further dissolves like the distinction between the identities by making the characters reflect on this explicitly so they experience themselves as as sort of going veering or oscillating between being separated selves in social situations and then feeling as those those though those distinctions are dissolved in another so they sort of become one with others and the people around them and also distinction between them and nature so that they merge with nature and become become this you know yeah become one with the waves around them the uh, the fields and the barn and yeah there's lots of beautiful metaphorical very lyrical descriptions of these Forms of ego dissolution, really, in literature, yeah. Um, are there any theories of consciousness, I guess, in neuroscience at the moment that would support she was writing about? Like, yeah. is there evidence to support like she was expressing? Well, I think I think definitely with the um, with the uh, predictive processing theory, the the notion of self that's entailed in that that could quite easily be uh, be compared with or yeah, with that sense of of there being no of human beings being these processes that take place, and the sense of having a sense itself is something that arises in a social situation as and because you're a human being that needs to survive in, in social context. And so this sense of being delimited or demarcated is evolutionarily use, useful, but it's also an illusion which you can 
than in certain circumstances, right? There's also, you know, some alignments with panpsychism, which is not as central and not as accepted a, a theory of consciousness as, as predictive processing. But, uh, but this idea of the consciousness as being the, the, the fundamental thing in the universe and being ubiquitous, which sort of just, you know, entails a yeah, blurring of the boundaries between, you know, sentient human, human beings and other sentient beings and also human beings and, and the natural surroundings, more broadly speaking. Yeah, I think maybe it would be useful for our listeners to have like a little kind of explanation of panpsychism and even predictive processing. We've talked about that before, but I don't think we have listeners besides our parents who are <laughs> that loyal. If we could talk about those two frameworks and also like how they would map on to what those kind of metaphors that you were explaining that are present in the Virginia Woolf stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no so, but just a, like a disclaimer, full disclosure that I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> My background is very much in the humanities and the literature, so I might I might get things wrong as I, as I try to explain it. And uh, yeah, and some of these theories are quite, for me, quite complicated. And this is Beth stuff, so Beth can help. Beth Beth should be able to jump yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That, yeah. <laughs> This is where interdisciplinary sees, yeah, it makes me sense. Yeah, exactly. Start with panpsychism because I, I actually don't really understand. I've never really been able to understand that. Mm. But I think but panpsychism, yeah, yeah. I think there's like lots of various panpsychism isn't just one thing. Like lots of these theories, like there's the various ideas of panpsychism, panpsychism, and one of the, the like the prejudices against it, and one of the reasons that it's not that it's being considered marginal is because it's easily sort of uh, reduced to this thing like, oh, everything is consciousness, this table Mm -hmm. is conscious, um, which is not the case. But it's, as far as I understand it, at least the ones that have sort of appealed, the versions of it that have appealed to me is that it's trying to, is in a way something that's developed in response to trying to handle the hard problem of explaining how consciousness arises from 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 matter, right, and the connection between the brain and, and consciousness, and trying to shift things around rather than explaining consciousness as an emerging property from matter, then saying matter might be emerging in some sense from consciousness, and consciousness might be the fundamental material of of, of everything of the world and, and, and ubiquitous, even on sort of an, an atomic level. So then in the waves, the passages where they're kind of, yeah, they kind of dissolve into nature. Mm. Is that kind of showing that idea because the consciousness is connected to both things and there's no one unique self? Is yeah, that how that yeah exactly. Because it sort of reflects this idea in panpsychism that, it can be seen as, as cohering with that this idea in panpsychism that consciousness isn't something that's delimited to an individual, right? We might experience it as such. It might seem as though it come, comes in these sort of delimited packages, but that's just, an, that's actually an illusion. And rather it's something much more fundamental that's like the building blocks of everything. And that's something, if in Virginia Woolf's novel, you can see that as 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 explained narratively and poetically, and you can almost identify with it and experience it as a, as a reason. Okay, how is it then to, to view the world and be in the world as a human being that identifies with this, this thing of consciousness being much more ubiquitous and fundamental rather than seeing it as something that distinguishes human being? That makes sense. And then, so with predictive processing, the idea is that we have these models and we get evidence out in the world and we update the models that we have through this prediction error. And I, in predictive processing, I feel like there's different <clears throat> theories of how the self mm. plays out within that. What What's our model of the self? How, how does that look like? And we've had Kelsey on the podcast before talking about that. And yeah, I'm the minute it gets to the stuff about the self, I kind of check out. But because <laughs> I I hate the idea of thinking I don't have a like a really strong sense of self. Oh, really? So no self really panics me. Oh, really? So yeah, it's so interesting it. with how people respond I, to it. Yeah. Because for me, it's like my reaction is like, it's a relief. Oh, great. Really? Yeah. It feels Ava, like a liberation. Feel? I feel like I'm probably in between you. I, I think, I don't know. I've always, I've always thought of it almost as like with, with the ways that I've seen other people talk about these things. I somehow feel like it's kind of tied to upbringing and like religion specifically. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. And I, Beth, I don't think you grew up religious, but I just feel like I was raised to not believe in anything. And sense of self also just feels like one other one of those things. But I also feel kind of as what Meto is saying in terms of it being 
something that we need to have. It's almost like those arguments about like, we could be living in the matrix. We could not be living in the matrix, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like whether or not my sense of self is an illusion or not, it's such a strong illusion and it's illusion that I need to keep holding that I don't really care about like the underlying mechanics of it in a sense. So I don't know. It could not, it could be an illusion, but it doesn't bother me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. For me, it also results in the same because I, I believe that determinism is true and it, it's sort of the same split or sort of same civilization where you, on one level, I know that I don't have a self and I know that I don't have free will, but on another level, just to function in a room and be, you know, have a con- have yeah. this conversation and go and get groceries and stuff, you sort of need to be, have those illusions there in order to, yeah. Survive. Do you feel like those things play into each yeah. other for you that the determinism, which again, for people who might not know is just the idea that like everything is, you can't really change anything. So no free will and that lack of sense of self, are those complementary views for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think they're very much co- connected, right? Because the, the idea of, of having free will that's connected to this, the idea of having a centered, uh, centered uh, uh, some nucleus of agency right you, you can only have agency if there's someone that has that agency that's someone that has the control and does that and so for me if you don't believe there's a sense itself i can't really see how you can believe there's free will as well i can i can see beth freaking out <laughs> Beth's face is just <laughs> oh no we need dissociating to wolf to make yeah, it because I, <laughs> I was actually speaking to someone in the lab about your work and like i fear of no sense of self and mm. i'm like oh maybe meta has some books i should read <laughs> and they talk about it in this mm. this way i just i just so you can go around and, and feel that and feel okay yeah for me it's like when i first saw it formulated explicitly in, you know in theoretical terms it was a relief or not a relief it was just like it was a I was excited to encounter it because it's always been my intuition. I've always felt determined, really? really, yeah. And I never had that sense of of self either. And is that also what kind of got you into this research? I think so. I think definitely because I recognized it. And it was also connected to some strong psychedelic experiences and starting to meditate at a certain point. I remember when I meditated when I was younger, I did, did a few times, but it never really sort of appealed to me because when I looked inside, I saw nothing, which at the time scared me. And then after having some strong psychedelic experiences and getting into the literature about, yeah, you know, they're actually not being as censored. So it's like, oh, wait a minute, maybe it's not scary. It's just the way it is. It's not, there's nothing wrong with me. No one has a self. Some, some people just <laughs> think that they do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting because we've, we've talked on the podcast before about people having these negative reactions to meditation where specifically, and like I had that experience too, where I was using an app that was, it wasn't headspace. So it wasn't as like commercial, I guess, but it would tell me to look for the self and would explicitly say like, you'll see that there's nothing there. And that was disturbing. And there's like some evidence that suggests that, you know, when you're in a Western world and you're just trying to meditate to like be more present or be more focused and for these goals that are very Western centric and often like relatively capitalistic that there's that clash where when you realize oh there's no self really they kind of have this ego dissolution that's extremely detrimental to the rest of your life whereas if you were like this monk then this is part of the process and this is a positive thing that you're realizing so that kind of like context I think is really important and it sounds like your psychedelic experience allowed you to have that shift to realize you this is okay yeah yeah, and I think it's that's. I mean, that you just got sort of reaching a really important point, which is that you know people have different intuitions, right, and different reactions. And the way I see, you know, consciousness st- studies, if it's to be an actual sort of ethic, ethically and existentially responsible field, it needs to take both of those into consideration, right, and both investigate what's what's the emancipatory liberating potential what potential is there for human enhancement here enhancement of well-being and of, of morality and increased empathy and what risks are there of uh, of actually sort of psychological disruption and social cultural disruption as well yeah. yeah if there is this whole no self thing there could be a whole group of people including someone like me who have this reaction to it mm. and it loses a lot of like i would really panic it would lose a lot of meaning for me mm. i would be really worried about how I like the people that I love that always comes yeah. up to like it's so important that the people that I love I feel like I love that 
yeah. essence and that thing about them yeah. and those relationships. Yeah. And I think if I truly accepted, oh, we don't have any self, I'd, I just don't think I could yet yeah, de- deal with You could that. thrive yeah, in it or you could, no, yeah, 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 no, yeah. And that's exactly where I think that literature could, could play an important role. Uh, partly, you know, just for offering consolation as you read it, consolation, also inspiration, allowing you to see the potential aspects yeah. of it. Uh, and also as a source for a kind of conceptual engineering. So in I'm idea of formulating an existentialism that would be fitting or sort of viable in this new neurocentric and 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 so that you could sort of gather or or yeah select concepts and ideas from literature that could be used for yeah developing existentialism that could give human beings a sense of yeah a sense of yeah. meaning and yeah you reconcile the idea of increasing morality increasing well-being by having people exposed to these potentially sort of or have people view these theories of consciousness as more eman- emancipatory but also believing that the world is deterministic do you think about that ever like that your work is trying to make a change in the world but at the same time everything is predetermined yeah, everything is predetermined, but that doesn't mean that. I mean, that that's that's that exactly comes from the idea that the belief in cause and in cause and effect, right? So I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe in cause and effect. I don't. I'm not fatalist, right? So it's not that I think that there's some master plan, and no matter what we do, we're going to end the same place. We're going to going to end up somewhere because of causes and the effects they have. So I'm just sort of watching that unfold, but I'm but I'm sort of hoping for that the effects that I that the actions that I have will have positive effects i don't know and i you know i know that's predetermined if if i had full insight into you know the the plus and thing full insight into how you know how cause and effect worked on every little subatomical level you could foresee that but but that's i do believe in cause and effect so any kind of action has effect and i'm hoping that (laughs) that 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 they will be you know that the effects of what i'm doing for example will lead to increased well-being I don't know. So do you see the self as more of like a conduit of cause and effect? Because because do you still think that we don't necessarily have agency? Yeah, yeah I don't think we have agency. Okay. Yeah. But I think we we just we just sort of uh, inscribe in these chains of cause and effect okay. really. So we are both the result of them, but we're also like part of them, right? Mm-hmm. So we are both the result of prior causes and we are the effects of that and we are also in ourselves No, I think it's really interesting the way that these these types of philosophies can kind of be reconciled because I think if I just ask is like an easy question of like, well, how can you simultaneously believe those two things at once? But I think clearly there are ways to be deterministic without being fatalistic, as you're saying. But I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess another is kind of going off what we're already speaking about, but so you have this intuition about what consciousness is and all this stuff. And then you look at it in the literature because these themes, uh, yeah, we find them again and again in literature, not just in science. You think that that gives evidence that it speaks to like, I don't, I mean, universal truth is a very strong word, Mm. but do you think if we find these things again and again, in works yeah. and, and not just literature, I guess, works of art mm. that is yeah, highlighting something because as the way literature and art can speak to human suffering and, mm. and love and all these other things that we have and we say, okay, well, these are truths about humanity. Mm. Do you think that it can also do that in terms of consciousness? Do you think it, it's uncovering something? Like we see yeah. these repeated things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think at least it shows that some of these intuitions are you know, have been there for a long, long time, right? The, both the, so we have, there's this, I mean, that's part of my project as well, this assumption that, oh, the conventional way of seeing yourself is having having this centered self and having agency and, and the new new theories will, and consciousness theories will disrupt that and that will create chaos. But, but there are also the other intuitions and I have that other intuition just naturally, right? And you see that in literature as well, that back to, to modernism and probably before that as well, there is the intuition that, well, the self is not centered and stable and no, we are not distinct from our surroundings. We're actually much more closely related to them than we think and human beings might not have their moral status, which is also one of the things that are being challenged in, in the context of these new, new theories. Right? So, so, so while I think the, like the, 
most traditional, most most sort of normal way of thinking about oneself is in terms of this, you know, having the centered self and, uh, and and agency. But the other intuitions have been there as well for a long time. It's not just something that neuroscience is coming up with now. But then it's really interesting for me, of course, that there's some of the new neuroscience that then sort of uh, support those intuitions, right? Yeah. I was. It was funny. I was speaking to Kevin after you spoke to Kevin mm. about this, and we were talking about, and he was saying religion also plays in this way of making this idea of no sense of self safe because mm. in most religions it can it does come back to this same idea mm. and people you know in in different traditions reach enlightenment or mm. heaven in these different ways but at the core of it it is kind of this no self idea yeah and he was saying one of the tools he you know of religion is to make people feel safe with that knowledge yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's connected to this thing of transcendental experiences, right, which is age old and which you have in all cultures, right, and which is something psychedelic substances in various cultures also aid or help release, right. But I think that's one of the things that often lead people to that sense of, of, of no self, right. And that can be within a religious framework or a Buddhist or a modernist or neuroscientific. Yeah. But those states of transcendence or feeling experience of transcendence. Yeah yeah are, are so fundamental like yeah. a perennial yeah. yeah yeah i'm wondering kind of in relation to beth's question about truth because you come from a humanities background you've also had these like very intense firsthand experiences it sounds like with with consciousness i mean as in a sense we all do but maybe we don't all have that kind of psychedelic or deep meditation experience and now you're coming into potentially like more contact with neuroscience and that kind of different form of knowledge so i'm wondering what you think of as truth in the space of consciousness. And you mentioned that now neuroscience is kind of supporting things that insights that have been expressed in literature, but do you see neuroscience as fundamentally adding something? Do you see neuroscience or science in general and the scientific method as imperative to understanding these things? Or is it also more of like what Beth was saying, when we encounter these phenomenologically, when we encounter these types of theories and we have these reactions to them no matter if they're true whatever that means or not we still might have strong emotional reactions to that and also you're trying to look at how to kind of deal with that that was a lot of questions in one but I guess I'm just wondering what you think of like these different types of ways of acquiring knowledge or having knowledge yeah and finding meaning and truth well I think all of them are important right and that's why ideally I would like consciousness research to be this interdisciplinary field that integrates these various and recognizes these various not forms of truth but actual kinds i mean truth right and interpretations of 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 existence and 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 life right and i think and i think all of it is important so there's i quite like this i mean there's i think the science is really is is really important right because it just has consequences for yeah i mean if and if we want to progress and um, I think our, our general insights needs to be in, in compatible and, and in alignment with with science, um, and I also think it's fascinating, <laughs> you know, uh, that that part of truth and covering that. Um, and there, you in science, then you have in consciousness studies. One of the central problems would be the um, the hard problem, as we spoke about before, like yeah, explaining how does how does a thing that seems sort of insubstantial or yeah, as consciousness arise from physical matter. Um, and then in philosophy, and also I, I guess more broadly speaking, humanities, you then have what what Owen Flanagan has termed the really hard problem, which is, well, how do we if I mean if we explain things materially, how do we then make the, then the the hard, hardest problem isn't to figure out how does consciousness arise, it's figuring out how do we make meaning, how do we find meaning as human beings, in in a materialist world and in a sort of neuroscientific explained reality. And I think those two questions are, I would say both of them are, are really important and really hard. And and one should focus on both of them. Um, and the truth, I mean, the final truth, which we will never get at, but only ever approximate, it, I think it should be approximated or sort of searched for by coming from these various routes, right? We're speaking about that after my presentation the other day as well, this pluralist approach to, to science and knowledge and truth and meaning, really rather than saying that one side, one type of science or knowledge has like the, the main authority than, than a combination and pluralism, pluralist approach. Is that what you would ultimately want to get to? Is like, I guess you mentioned the area of consciousness that is more interdisciplinary. Is that your main goal or is part of it? And yeah. 
how important is the part that's more helping people cope and do those feed into each other at all? Yeah, I think that, yeah, they do definitely. They're sort of, I think those are, so I was explaining these two dimensions or aspects in my project. One of establishing conscious research is this broad interdisciplinary field and another of looking at literature specifically because that's where I have my expertise. But underlying that is like part of this idea or, or interest in reconciling humanist approaches and culturalist approaches with the scientific ones and neuroscientific ones specifically and then another one is underlying sort of interest and ambition is to is to develop this existentialism that would be yeah sort of sustainable and adequate for for this this yeah this increasingly scientifically explained explained world we live in and possibly like post post human future yeah so the existentialism is the part that is kind of like developing a way for people to cope. Exactly. Okay. Developing a framework that would enable people to accept these new explanations that might seem disturbing and living with them in a meaningful way. And and partly living with them and accepting like the uncertainty and potential disenchantment that may entail, but also living with them in a way that could perhaps enable people to um, to sort of realize and, and, and use the, the the positive or beneficial potential of them as well. One of the things I'm looking at here is Robert Musil, the man without qualities. He has this, so he has like a very yeah, non-essential idea of self. He's also the, he was using contemplative theories, integrating that in his, in his, in his work, which is very literary philosophical work. And so the main character there, Ulrich, he's he's the one who's referred to by the title, the man without qualities. So this idea that he's he's Musilist through his main character Ulrich, exploring this idea that the ideal form of subjectivity or personal identity is one without fixed qualities. And instead of having like fixed qualities or fixed like personality traits, uh, you try to adopt these more abstract characteristics of flexibility mobility and they're also more poetic terms of like weightlessness and it's a way of 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 being in the world and that was written you know in the in, in the beginning and middle of the of the 20th century but i find that those are really relevant and, and could be quite interesting to work with in the for today's you know for, for our contemporaneity and could be really interesting to work with and yeah in, as part of this project of developing a an, an adequate existentialism for today. Yeah, I think it's really important because one of the things that can happen when people have these no self experiences is they they can end up mm. not in a good way. Mm. And and I think that all of this, all the consciousness research at the moment that looks at you know psychedelics and all that stuff, it's all really positive. But I get worried. Actually, mm. I get very worried that people aren't looking at okay, well, what yeah. are the people who've had this experience and and haven't been able to cope with that? Mm. And I think you're the first person I've really spoken to who's like, we can do something to help with that. Mm. And bef yeah, I, I feel like people don't really like to talk about that, yeah. that side and like people can have a negative experience or, you know, and, and develop things like psychosis and these kind of things. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh, we're just not going to talk about yeah. that because it cures everything. And if we all just meditate and take psychedelics, yeah. Yeah. it'll be fine. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, that's not true. And a, and a lot of people it can be quite dangerous for. Yeah. And I get upset about that because I think we really need to protect to recognize, those people. Yeah. And, yeah, and we need not to make it a taboo as well, yeah. right? I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, and I think it is it is quite interesting and funny to 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 observe that reaction, right? Because there is such an epic excitement about it, and for good reasons, right? Yeah. I mean, there's some of these studies are really really promising, you know, but they're also you know things that contradict them and a lot of it still needs to be replicated right and i think because i mean there was this whole dark age of you know of, of psychedelic research people are tend to be very protective of it now so they like they don't want to you know hear about the dark stuff because they're really worried that we're going to be ending up and still opening up again this field and they're really worried that it's going to be closed down but obviously we need to be able to speak about yeah all of the yeah because implications if, if you don't do that and then so if, if we make this claim oh, well, if we all just come to this conclusion, we have no self and that's the truth and that's the best thing you can do. Mm. If you are someone who thinks they should do that and then doesn't have that experience, mm. then what do you feel like that you're not, Yeah, like you can't handle? Like, I don't, like that yeah. would just feel so alienating yeah. And, yeah. and awful. And that's, when I think about all that stuff, that's what I yeah. get worried about. Yeah, 
and that's where I think, I mean, it's really important that other disciplines and disciplines from the humanities in particular um, are involved as well, right? Anthropology and, and cultural studies and narrative studies and so on. Also because it's really important and that's something that sometimes gets lost, right? When a neuroscientist speaks about there being no self and a, someone from the humanities speak about it, I mean, there are so many different ways of defining the self, right? It, it can, I mean, it's, it's, it's so many, I mean, it's not like we're not, I mean, we are here as persons, right? Yeah. There is some, yeah. you know, there is distinctions. And there are notions of self that can be preserved, you know, and maybe the idea of a narrative self and so on can yeah. be, can be, um, yeah, combined with, with some of the, the other no-self ideas and ego dissolution ideas. Yeah. yeah. No, I love the idea of how can we make this research kind of safe and make people feel okay with it. I think that that's really mm. important. I'm wondering with this yeah. research, because as Beth is saying, like having this kind of dissolved sense of self currently for us is like pretty problematic, right? So people genuinely feel all the time without the kind of compartmentalizing that Meta, you and I kind of feel like have that we're like, yeah, there's not really a sense of self, but like, okay with that. And I can continue on in the world as if there was, because as you also mentioned, it's so evolutionarily important to be able to trust that someone else has a sense of self and you have to act like you have a sense of self too, to be able to have like society where we're very dependent on each other function. But do you think that there is a potential society or world in which you could function without having that stable sense of self and by fully kind of dissolving that illusion? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of hope there will be because that's exciting. Like John Danaher, he argues, you know, for the like, I mean, all the... Or tries to shed light on some of all the positive aspects of like of, of the post-human or transhuman you know future in society entering into the hive mind society and just giving up individuality totally for the moment i feel as though you know what i'm seeing in in for instance robert musil and virginia wolf this idea that you veer between the two notions right you realize you recognize that the illusion or the idea or the, the narrative of having a distinct self and an individuality is is necessary, but you also deliberately try, try to explore non-essential modes of being and, and existence. And then you can veer back and forth, right? So, I mean, you can, and that can be, you know, implemented in all sorts of ways as an individual through psychedelic experience, meditation, just being in nature and so on and reading your theory as well. And then trying to sort of find a, balance or sort of harmonics of going back and forth between those two modes rather than being like well no you have to identify fully with not being a self and with all the the consequences for not being able to function in society or no you have to buy into the whole lie so yeah find, finding a mode where you be a back and forth or yeah vacillate between those two modes but I also find the other idea exciting and I'm certainly sort of I'm just remaining curious and yeah an agnostic as to what will actually be the best thing for for us in the future. And then what are the benefits of a society that can recognize that there's no self? Like what good things would come of, of, of living like that? Yeah, so I think there's also disagreement around that, yeah, right? Yeah. One of the things is that it could result in, I mean, that sense of not realizing that you don't have a sense of self and it's not a self and not seeing you as as dis, as distinct could result in being less sort of self-protective and less sort of precious about yourself, which could result in increased empathy and increased duration for for other humans and other beings, sentient beings as such, right? The recognition or realization that we don't have any free will, that would also, with that would come the, um, like one of the implications would, that wouldn't make sense to either blame anyone or praise anyone as well, right? So the thing of, of punishing people would become, punishment would become sort of, that would be rendered obsolete, um, which could also, I think, have some some major major benefits and, and, and result in increased well-being. Uh, and I think a lot of these things that causes us suffering in existence is this thing that we have this, yeah, we have this, we cling on to the sense of self, we're protective of it and very precious about it and jealousy and, and all these negative emotions and hatred and things like that. I think they are quite connected to that sense of having that delimited self and sense itself. So if that could be loosened or dissolved, I think lots of good things could, could come from it. And, and then there are, of, of course, also, you know, it could also be destabilizing, right? right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so are there also what would be the negative consequences of having? Yeah, lots of people worry that with determinism, for instance, and the and, and the insight that we have no free will, that it would just 
like sort of be a reason for people to not care anymore and not try and just sort of lean back and be like, well, I'm not going to make an effort because it's all determined anyway. I've yet to see it have anyone react to it that way. You know, you still just have your own constitution and because you are determined, have your gene to just continue to act. And I mean, since I've had that realization, it certainly didn't have any demoting effect on me. I still just, I'm... I'm determined by genes and so on. I still just do what I do, even though that I now have that sort of meta view on myself. But also people do worry that 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 it would actually lead to an increase in crime as well. I, because yeah. if I can't be held responsible, if there's no punishment, then why would I try to be virtuous? That's what I was wondering. Yeah. 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 Which I think is a valid consideration. Yeah. yeah. Because I worry. Because then, then are we assuming that everyone is at heart good? Is that because I feel like we're assuming... We don't have a self, but what we do have there it has to be good then, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's good. It's just it's it just is. It's neither good or bad, right? But right, you would okay. but you would hope then and you know, again come back to cause and effect that people realizing these things would mainly have a beneficial impact. Yeah. But then again, that depends, you know, on personality and, yeah. and things like that. So it's it's I mean, it's very yeah. difficult to say, which is why we need to be aware of, you know, both yeah. 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 Both intuitions and both the risks and dangers and the and the yeah possible benefits. My mind is so like twisted right now, I, I feel like. like what? I didn't expect it to go this way. <laughs> really? I expected it to go this yeah. way for sure. <laughs> and we were talking it's talking to a humanities person. It, of course they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna twist us up. That's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's what, that's my my secret plan of getting the humanities, the master plan of getting humanities into invading the natural sciences. And I think it's just that we're so used to, especially for me, I don't know if you connect with this, Beth, but I feel like philosophy and humanities in general, there's so much more work that goes into it in a sense in terms of like deep thought. And I feel like a lot of the times as a psychologist, there's some periods where I am thinking relatively deeply about what I'm doing. But most of the time it's like very menial tasks or like, interact with participants like things that almost it feels sometimes like almost anyone off the street could do um, and so I feel like a lot of the times I'm not engaging really deeply especially not with these like potential imagined futures like thinking about the hive mind or thinking about what it could be to have a society in which like, might not even need any of this like a narrative self where it's just like experiential self and moment to moment living yeah. or even like extended mind and thinking of all of us as like kind of brain AI futures. Mm. And so it's just hard as a psychologist to project myself there and think about also like thinking about it in terms of implications of what that means for now and what we should do now. And I think it's just amazing that you have that type of ability to project yourself and that you're working on such huge ideas now. So, yeah. Mm. But then I like the other thing I like, I like what you have and what scientists have, right? And that's why I, I want the interdisciplinarity, right? Because I want the the, the thoughts of, of humanists or people from humanities and, and and philosophers to, you know, to, I mean, those thought experiments and ethical concerns should, of course, be sort of reality checked, right? And you can only do that if you if you think in, in, in collaboration with scientists who can actually tell you about, okay, so no, that's never going to be possible or no, that's like an irrelevant scenario. Otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of energy on irrelevant you know, a scenario of thinking and letting your imagination run wild, right? So if you want those deep thoughts to be actually relevant and beneficial, then they need to, I think, happen in correspondence with, with science. Do you have plans for real kind of applied things that you could do, like education programs? Is that something that you have in mind or do you want to work more on that theory part and let other people figure I it out? I still have it depends on it depends on where it goes from here so right now I'm doing like a two and a half year postdoc which runs out in a year from now and so I'm going to be applying for various grants to start like first like a little sort of little center for this thing and then working on establishing like a broader international network for for this interdisciplinary consciousness research I'm organizing a conference in Oxford in April 12th and 3rd April which brings together lots of research researchers from different fields to think about these things collectively. So I'm trying to establish that field, but how it's how it's gonna 
how it's sort of how it's concretely gonna be gonna look in the future i don't quite know it depends on who will be willing to support me as well right but ideally it's you know it's very broad and then of course i would you know i would be in charge mostly of or not in charge but you know be <laughs> be be invested in the literary aspect most in that would where i would be coming from accessing that broader field from but then having lots of other people in engaged and involved and working on, on various different projects and doing proper experiments as well and yeah yeah yeah. It's really cool because I know you're focused on consciousness, the con- consciousness research, but I feel like this could be applied to other fields as well, mm. or other areas of research. Like I do mental health research yeah. and so much of how we can understand people's experiences through literature, yeah. how we can communicate things like, you know, a lot of the findings and everything are quite difficult or different treatments and things people can have is a lot. And I think the idea of using other fields yeah. to make that knowledge more understood and also as scientists understanding more of people's experience through literature yeah. all of that stuff yeah I think is a really cool thing to think yeah, about yeah I think yeah that's a really good point and that's like another aspect that I'm also trying to be quite explicit about in my project this you know the this whole area of new newer technologies and the new increased possibilities of influencing and also manipulating human mind states and some pretty important questions, problems arise from those new possibilities. Like, for instance, what what is a good state of consciousness? Is there such a thing as a good state of consciousness? What's what, what's a bad one, right? And that's something that's literature that literature has been thinking about and exploring for for ages. I mean, since it since it first arose. So that's another th- place where I feel that this sort of almost like vast field of literary consciousness theory which literature in a sense is can can be of use yeah. to explore those yeah issues as beth was saying like it feels like a lot of our an interdisciplinary and dis- interdisciplinarity how big of a buzzword that was and it obviously is important because it feels like in a lot of our fields as beth was saying like in mental health in science we don't talk enough to people who are studying mental health in other ways like people who are writing about characters who have various mental health issues and things like that but to me, like when I think of a consciousness, like because I'm not in the field, it feels like it's one of the most interdisciplinary fields that we have right now because there's like, AI researchers, yeah. there's philosophers, like it just seems to be bridging so much. So I'm wondering like where you see yeah. consciousness now in terms of research and do you feel like it's actually just an illusion from the outside that there is a lot of crosstalk? It sounds like it is. So I'm just curious of like what the state of it is no, from the yeah. inside. No, I think there is. I mean, mostly the disciplinarity has been in terms of, of philosophy engaging with it as well, right? So, and that's what I'm interested in, is, you know, is integrating disciplines, if anything, beyond philosophy as well, but also preserving, of course, philosophy's engagement because that's really important. And, but I think it's actually with conscious research, it is because it is, I mean, it's just so fundamental, right? And it's something that's important to all fields. It's quite, even though there might be that much cross disciplinarity. In conversation going on at the moment there's still engagement with consciousness in so many fields and when i then try to activate it now the response is really positive people are just like they just need to, like an invitation like yes sure i mean so it seems a place where it's actually quite easy to to do actual interdisciplinarity and not just yeah where it doesn't just remain a buzzword but what is yeah. actually quite easy to to facilitate and make happen for real which is nice yeah that's cool. yeah Okay, so you're not struggling yeah. to integrate these things. Like, there's, there's the will to do that. No. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah, so far, there's definitely the will. And people very much, at least the ones I've been in contact with, yeah, agree that this is, yeah, this is interdisciplinary. Cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're going to get your yeah. theory of everything uh, soon. <laughs> <laughs> Any day now. I guess to end. So if people have listened to this and they're really interested in all these kind of ideas we've spoken about, and want to learn more mm-hmm. where should they go because i feel like this should they start yet yeah, reading certain books or what would you suggest people because i think a lot of people are going to listen to this and be like oh my god yeah what <laughs> <laughs> oh oh that's difficult because i mean there's so many different sources right and depends on which aspect you're interested in as well if, if anyone's want like an introduction to my project there's the uh, the paper that i also yeah. shared with you which is going to be out in journal of consciousness uh, studies. I think it's called the value of 
literature for the for the field of consciousness studies. Yeah. yeah. And I'm I have more things in the pipeline, so there should be should be more out of that. And if people can make it to the conference in Oxford, <laughs> then that's definitely that's gonna be a pretty central event for that, I think. And apart from that, I mean then it's a very vast field, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, yeah. I mean, there's contemplative studies, there's, then there's all the theory of consciousness and the yeah. various theories. In literature, there's, I'm looking at modernist literature at the moment, but there's also, which very much has, you know, it deals with the more sort of optimistic mm-hmm. towards these ideas of non-essential self, but there's also postmodernism, which in, to a much larger degree is focused on the more problematic aspects of it, like the fragmented self and things like that. And in contemporary literature, there's lots of, uh, like literature that's more explicitly engaged with new new scientific theories then there's a whole f- you know field of science fiction <laughs> which yeah, is yeah yeah, totally. yeah. so it, de- it depends on really on which specific concepts you find yeah you sort of yeah find oh, interesting cool. yeah in fields i just read recently clara and the sun have you read oh that? yes yeah yeah, have yeah. You read clara and the sun ava yeah and i feel like that felt really real yeah like that i feel like that could be us yeah. I mean, he's one of my favorite authors. I've read everything yeah. he's ever written. Yeah. But I thought that I really felt, oh, this, Yeah, I can see myself yeah. here dealing with, I don't know, there was something No, yeah, and it's such a good an ex- example of, of literature illustrating in a way that's just beyond the capacity of, you know, scientific totally. and, and philosophical yeah. genres, illustrating like the possible implications psychologically, emotionally, yeah. socioculturally of, yeah. of some of these new technologies, AI specifically right here. Yeah, yeah. I found that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good example. Have you read um, Machines Like Me? Cool. It's yeah. uh, I think it's Ian McEwen, I want to say. It's kind of similar, but it's yeah. also it's also an AI yeah. thing. And I, I actually liked it better than Clara and the Sun. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And several of his oh. things are yeah. Uh, yeah, are relevant for this as well. Yeah, you yeah. should read it both. I don't think you're gonna like it more than Clara yeah. and the Sun. <laughs> 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 but I recommend it. And then, uh, I definitely recommend Robert Musil's *The Man Without Qualities*, also okay, just cool. because it's my favorite literary works. But yeah. I, I, yeah, it's, it's amazing, and the extent to which it, yeah, corresponds to, yeah, contemplative theories, studies, and, and, and neuroscience, and then still being totally anti, anti-religious and yeah. secular. It's really nice. And Virginia Woolf's *The Wave* as well is really much cool. shorter and really inspirational as well. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh